Hello there, world. Before we get started, I'd like to make a request up front, but it's not what you think. At least it's not only what you think. Yes, if you enjoy our podcast, we would really appreciate it if you went to our Patreon site and became patrons of the podcast. We are at patreon.com slash a million little gods. All one word. We've never really put enough effort into the campaign because this show is sort of a side project for us, but, you know, we, we could really use the help. Beyond that, however, we'd like to ask you to consider joining another cause. The Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. These folks are carrying on the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King and his vision for a revolution of values. The campaign is trying to build, in their words, a broad fusion movement that can unite poor and impacted communities across the United States to confront the interlocking evils of systemic racism, poverty, ecological devastation, militarism in the war economy, and the distorted moral narrative of religious nationalism. To learn more about the campaign and make a donation, visit poorpeoplescampaign.org. That's P-O-O-R-P-E-O-P-L-E-S-C-A-M-P-A-I-G-N dot O-R-G. That is way too many letters to read out loud. Gods. I'm Ben Federson. And I'm Aaron Gowan. We're not coming to you from the University of Hamburg uh, because the University of Hamburg is closed like a lot of the rest of the world at the moment. Um, so I'm sitting in my bedroom <laughs> in scenic Hamburg, Germany. And Aaron is, where are you exactly? I'm, I'm somewhere between Hamburg and Lübeck on the coast. And I'm bunkered away, although I think it's really important to mention our successes here in Germany. We are open here at the mm. university. It's just that our buildings are closed because we can. Um, mm. The schools reopened in May last school year so the parents could have some relief, and then the schools yeah. reopened on time with safety measures. Uh, we are not opening our buildings because, you know, why bother when we can do everything digitally? Mm. Although there is one kind of extenuating circumstance with our building. I think we've mentioned before that um, the building uh, where I work is under a historical preservation. It's a mid-century modern um, office building from the 60s, and it's got this air conditioning that's original, and it's about 50 years old. <laughs> it's a closed circuit, which means that it's basically just constantly pumping the same air in and filtering it out, but it can't do that perfectly well. And so we have to limit the number of people who are in a given room, even in normal circumstances. And now it's, you know, basically just a big giant jet powered coronavirus accelerator. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, 
that's neither here nor there. Yeah, sorry. We were framing this episode around the start of baseball season, and you were mm-hmm. actually intentionally waiting for baseball season yep. to start. And yep. that's yep, that's right. And and it did start ignominiously. And, and the way the Red Sox are playing, I can't wait for it to end. What was it? At least a dozen Florida Marlins players. I guess it's the Miami Marlins mm-hmm. players tested positive. Mm-hmm. Uh, for coronavirus. Yep, right out of the but gate, I mean, yeah. I guess a Miami Marlin is a Florida Marlin, sort of, by definition. Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess. I mean, subset, superset. And by by the transitive property, every Florida Marlin is a Floridian, and every Floridian is a dipshit. So, <laughs> so every Miami Marlin is a dipshit Marlin. <laughs> <laughs> I'm from Florida. I'm allowed to make these jokes. Mm-hmm. um so so the the general question is sort of what does baseball have to do with what we're talking about uh you know race categories like what's the relevance of baseball for that well i mean i don't think it's much of a leap to talk about statistical phenomena under the aegis of 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 baseball Mm. But I do have a few separate but um, interconnected angles that I want to um, come at this topic from. Okay. One of which is actually something you brought up when we were recording ideas and thoughts last fall. Mm -hmm. But before we get to that, I thought we could just review part one of this episode or part one of this story. Um, You'll remember that that William James quotation that I um, cited in that last episode. Sure. Are Are you familiar with that quotation? I've got to be honest, William James is one of the philosophers that I was assigned to read in undergraduate uh, philosophy, and I skimmed at most, and then, but I always got really into the discussion, because the things that he was talking about, the issues that he was raising, I found really interesting, um, but I can't say that I know that specific quote. Yeah, sure. Is that you? Is William James the blooming buzzing confusion guy? Yes, yes, he is the blooming buzzing confusion guy. That's um, about babies and their developing cognitive abilities. Yeah, that's from, that's from the same book. That's the extent of my William James. Mm, he's also the the varieties of religious experience guy. That is, he um, um, takes people's religious experiences and he wants to take them at face value, but also examine them as as experiences right so we're talking about phenomenology we're talking about the experience of subjective perception phenomenology yeah on sich in and of itself yep right and from the episode you'll remember that um i contended that many of the categories that we make are whims not of our individual phenomenologies Mm. but of our our collective perceptions they're choices we make about what we decide to take seriously. That's how we get, you know, social phenomena and and turn them into categories. You might even say, like, things. That's how we get things. That's how we decide what's a thing. That's that's true. I mean, not only do we choose what to pay attention to, but a huge amount of our attention is not a product of any conscious choice. That collective attention is kind of an emergent 
process that is not dictated by any one set of circumstances, but just kind of comes out of a lot of people making individual decisions. Advertisers have known this for as long as there's been professional advertisers, right? The way that you frame something, the things that you put around it, the context you give it dictates how people think about it. You know, when I worked at a grocery store, we would have uh, items that sold, you know, maybe a case a week. And you put that item on a shelf that's the first thing the customer sees when they come in the door, you'll sell 10 cases a week. And it's the same item, right? Because you've just brought it to their attention and they're thinking about it and they focus on it and that makes them buy it. I don't think there's any sort of deep reflection on the customer's part about, oh, I, I really want this now. It's just, it happens to be, uh, it happens to be on their radar. And so they interact with it. I'll give you another example. This, what we're about to talk about, uh, the case of having a an artificial intelligence analyze data and then use that data to draw uh, conclusions about what examples belong in which group. That's not a process that's meaningful without a decision or some kind of determination about what the relevant distinctions between categories are. You can't have categories without having made that distinction first, right? It's logically prior. And another way of thinking about that is that's the context. That's what we're interested. That's what we're, that's what we're interested in. That's what we're paying attention to. We're paying attention to these traits and not these traits. And given that, what categories can you draw? And I think this is where a lot of the maybe confusion, I don't know whether it's confusion in sort of like a good faith sense or uh, mystification or sophistry around categories like racial categories come from is that people who are, let's say, race realists will get really huffy and defensive and say, well, you can't deny that it's just a fact that human beings have these differences, right? Are you going to deny that skin color isn't different, right? But of course, that's not the point. The point is those distinctions flow logically and systematically out of a set of uh, decisions about context and what's important and what's not important that are not necessarily arbitrary, but they could be anything that you want them to be. And so when you punch those sets of decisions into an AI, it gives you back exactly what you were asking it for, which is useful, um, but it's not telling you anything really new about the world. It's not giving you anything that you didn't give it. Um, and I think that's the same for uh, these sort of attention directing strategies. The Major League Baseball cheating scandal sending shockwaves around the world. The owner of the Houston Astros fired the team's general manager and manager after an investigation found that the Astros cheated by stealing signs during their World Series championship season. <sighs> Do you remember January when everything seemed so fraught and 
important, like anything else whatsoever. Joining me now is legendary sportscaster and MLB Network host, Bob Costas. Bob, thanks so much for being with us. I think every baseball fan in America yesterday, when this ruling came down, had the same response that I did, which was, wow. But just so our CNN viewers, who are used to maybe impeachment in Iran and other things, right. know what we're talking about. This happened more quickly than impeachment, Absolutely. by the way. Jeez, <sighs> just the sheer hubris of us in January, worrying about the modern-day equivalent of, I don't know, the quiz show scandal or Watergate or something, when Americans are going to have to fight in the friggin' Thunderdome for respirators in like a month. Eh, we didn't know. We couldn't know. How could we know? We 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 could have known. We 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 could have known, but that's that's not what we were that's not what we were paying attention to. Sign stealing. One of the glorious aspects of the game of baseball that lifts it up from out of its meager station as a collection of physical duels that somehow adds up to a competition is the battle of wits that takes place in the encoding and decoding of signs that catchers and pitchers use to decide what sort of pitch to throw or coaches use to communicate whether to try hitting, bunting, or stealing bases. If you can decode such signs, you have a tactical advantage against your opponent. And that tactical ploying is part of the game. Stealing signs has always been part of baseball. And if you do it by your wits and powers of observation, it's gamesmanship, it's not only allowed, it's approved of, you're applauded for it. The thing is, baseball is still a game, and games are made up of arbitrary rules. Of course, some of those rules are, are formed because the players and the rule makers observe the game being played, and then they make new rules when the players, you know, game the system, so to speak. It's a recursive system. The infield fly rule is like that. The idea is that if there are runners on base and a hitter hits a, a ball shallow enough that it's going to land in or near the infield, and an umpire decides the ball could be caught by the infielder using normal effort, then the ump can just call the batter out automatically. If that didn't happen and the ball fell on the ground so close to the infield, then the runners would be forced to try and advance to the next base, and that would give the defensive team a sort of perverse motivation just to not catch the ball. So you build from your prior knowledge and develop the rules. Is it the same with sign stealing? By using anything outside of that, by using technology, even back in primitive days, uh, they used to use telescopes sometimes from the center field bleachers and some sort of makeshift signaling system. But now the technology is so sophisticated and ever evolving, who knows how much more sophisticated it'll be next week or next year. Look at it this way. You can do anything you want within reason to prepare to take the SAT. Mm -hmm. But when you go in to take the SAT, none of that technology comes with you. Whatever you've learned and studied prior to is one thing, then you gotta take the test. So once the, once the first pitch is thrown and until the last pitch of the game, the idea is no technology. I don't know. It's harder than you might think to say where technology and data end and people begin. In fact, although you may worry that we soon won't have competing athletes, but competing technology. When you examine it closely, the technology is more like us than you might think. Allow me to take you back to even more halcyon days than January. 
all the way back to the 10th of September, 2019. New recording? Okay. Yep. Um, so I think that we should start out by talking about baseball. Yeah. You can, yes. It's great because you can insert a bunch of baseball sort of sound clips in the background. Yeah. Pe- peanut seller and the crack of the bat and the cheer of the crowd. You know, yeah. it's it's good. Great sound design. Yeah. Um, now, I want to give credit where credit is due. I got this idea from a very popular uh, video by the YouTuber Mark Rober. Two years ago, I came up with an idea for an app where you could decode baseball signs so you would know when the other team was going to steal even after just the first inning. Then, in a covert effort to get people more interested in coding and machine learning, I would make the app free and available to everyone. And I'm happy to report, it's no longer just an idea. And it's the one where he, uh, with the help of Jabril, his uh, programmer friend, he builds a machine learning program to decode baseball signals of secret baseball signs it's the game within the game Most and know breaking the code is actually not that complicated but machine learning would enable you to break any code no matter what form it took um, in a relatively short amount of time but what caught my interest for the purposes of this topic mm. uh, is jabril the coder was explaining machine learning and he said that uh, machine learning is very good at taking different groups of observations and drawing the boundaries between distinct groups. Moving parts and things like that. And so, if we ask Timmy about 20 different toys and start to plot those on the graph, we'll start to see a pattern. So generally, he likes toys that are big and complicated, but does not like toys that are small and simple. And so, by looking at his past preferences, we can make really good predictions for the future. If you show little Timmy here a toy that is this complicated and this big, we're confident that he'll like it before we even show it to him because it is inside the like boundary. That's the big deal. And obviously that's what we're talking about here is, um, Drawing boundaries, drawing mm. categories, being able to say this thing is that thing and this other thing is this other thing. Learning. We don't have to take the time and show little Timmy here every toy that's ever been created and record his answers. After we record some likes and dislikes, we're able to draw some boundaries. And precisely where we draw these boundaries is the secret sauce. Okay, so we're back in 2020. I'm, I'm sorry. The secret sauce Jabril is talking about. You often hear quants and coders speak about black boxes, but they don't they don't mean flight recorders like in airplanes that are there in case the plane crashes. A, a black box is just a set of calculations way too complicated for our little processing brains to encompass, but not too powerful for a computer to process, and it all just seems like magic. You put something into the box and something else new comes out of it. But don't get that wrong. The black box is designed to act just like our brains. Or better said, powerful, speedy computer processors run special sorts of algorithms that work just like the neural networks in our brains. And the kinds of calculations those algorithms run are way too complex for my particularly puny brain to parse and explain. But I I can say that they all depend on a particular theorem first developed by a Presbyterian minister in the 18th century, Thomas Bayes, that deals in prior beliefs and building on those beliefs to make better beliefs through evidence.
That music you hear is a sign that it's time for us to do something completely unnecessary, seeing as we begged in the pre-roll. But look, I've got to come clean here. We're 20 minutes in, and I'm about to unleash a half-hour mathematical super derecho on your asses. I think I've kept it fun, but honestly, I just, I, it's not, man, I, you know? Anyhow, if, if you get through this next half hour and you feel edified and entertained, then come on, throw some love our way. Become a patron on patreon.com or just donate one time via our website, amillionlittlegods.com. That's all I got. Okay, here we go. Good luck. So here's Bayes' rule. It says the probability of A when B is given is the same thing as the probability of B when A is given times the probability of A divided, all of that divided by the probability of B. This does not work well on a, on a podcast. Let me tell a story. A while ago, Ben sold his car. He lives in Hamburg, and he and his wife can use their bikes or public transport most of the time. And if they need a car, there are car sharing apps. He told me when he had sold it, the dealer said it was too bad the car was manual and not automatic. Automatics, it turns out, are are more in demand and sell faster. Now, that was surprising to me. Almost everyone I know here in Germany owns a stick shift. Until recently, they were considered more environmentally friendly. Now, moving on from there, about a month ago, my girlfriend told me that a friend of hers who couldn't work from home was given a company car so that he didn't have to commute by public transport every day during the pandemic. The question occurred to me, hmm, I wonder if that car is a stick or an automatic. Now, there are plenty of factors that I could take into account that would make my guess better. Like how probable it is that a company rather than a private person would buy an automatic. But I'll leave that out of our equation this time. The important probabilities I need to consider are German-ness and automatic car having-ness. Having-tude. I want to know how likely it is my girlfriend's friend's new company car is an automatic car, seeing as I know he is German. I'm guessing it's only about 0.2 times more likely that his car is automatic. But I can plug those data into Bayes' theorem and calculate it. So the probability of owning a new automatic car, given that you are German, is equal to the probability of being German, given that you own a new automatic car, times the probability of owning an automatic car, divided by the probability of being German. Some quick research on the internet can tell me a lot of these things. It turns out that 35% of all cars sold last year were automatic, including 47% of the cars in Germany, which surprises me. And 1.07% of the world's population in 2020 is German. Since there were 3.6 million new passenger cars sold in Germany last year, that means 1.69 million of them were automatic, and there are 83 million people in Germany, meaning that about 2% of the total German population owns a new automatic car. So 2% of 1.07% of the total world population makes the probability of your being German, given that you own a new automatic car, about 002 
So we could say the probability of owning a new automatic car, given that you're German, is equal to 0.02 times 47 divided by 1.07, or in total, 0.878. That is way more than I thought. The amount of information that I learned about my belief doing the calculation, the Bayes factor, is the difference between my prior and posterior beliefs. So 0.878 minus 0.2 equals a Bayes factor of 0.678. That was just a tiny little calculation, but it's something I'm subconsciously doing all the time in great frequency and at much greater complexity. Babies do this from the youngest of ages. Remember William James's blooming, buzzing confusion in babies as they form their cognitive abilities? In some ways that's true. They haven't had many chances to run enough calculations, but in very important other ways, from the very beginning, babies' brains are subconsciously doing more neurological calculations than any adult can perform. In that way, babies are the smartest of us all. With the processing power of computers, however, we can manage so much more and bring to our conscious minds the power of such Bayesian probability at unimaginable scales. But remember where Jabril told us that power comes from. It's the ability of such algorithms to distinguish salient groups and to ignore the mass of superfluous information that would take up all of our attention otherwise. Uh, congratulations, you're getting furloughed back to 2019 for three minutes. That's the limit of machine learning. It can't tell you anything that you didn't tell it how to do. Mm. But it can figure out a way to distinguish, to draw boundaries between the groups. And the interesting thing is that it will do this on the basis of a bunch of complex calculations that don't really point in any particular direction when you go in and look at it. There's sort of a black box. You feed a bunch of information in, and you get an output. But if you want to say, well, why did you give me this output? What? How are you drawing those categories? How do you know, or think you know, that this person is from one country or the other? The computer won't be able to tell you. You won't be able to look into the code and figure out what it's basing this determination on. The information goes in, goes through a bunch of what look like sort of random convolutions, and an answer pops out. And that answer is going to be a category. It's going to be a classification. But that classification is going to be based on the data that you gave it. You're training the computer to see the world in a certain way. You're training the computer how to make classifications. And really what it's doing is it's learning to mimic your classifications. So if you're teaching it how to make classifications based on objective things, like someone's nationality, then you can build an algorithm, a machine learning algorithm, to do, you know, pretty useful things. Like, for example, in this baseball example, you can tell whether a sign means steal this base 
or don't steal the base. If those categories, if those classifications are more subjective in nature, if you teach a machine learning algorithm to copy your subjective classifications, then you're going to be training a machine to essentially mimic your personal subjective classification. Let's say a good painting and a bad painting. The machine learning algorithm might be able to predict what kind of paintings you like and what kind of paintings you don't like, but there's two important things. The first thing is it, you won't be able to look at that algorithm later and understand why you like certain paintings more than others. And the second important thing is this is not a computer telling you what is objectively a good painting and what is objectively a bad painting. This is not some mathematical examination of goodness and badness. It's just the computer reflecting back to you the judgments that you trained it to make. And so when it comes to things that are more subjective in nature, more maybe social in nature, using machine learning is not really going to help us learn anything new. It's just going to help us make predictions about what we already think we know or think that we value. To a great extent, I agree with Ben. These tools aren't genies in bottles. They're augmentations of what we are. And the freaky thing is, we're augmentations of what they are. But let me get back to that. Much of what Ben is describing, machine learning designed after neurological networks, indeed the very app Jabril designed to code baseball signs, similar versions of which the Houston Astros, as well as my beloved Red Sox, used to steal signs, those methods aren't yet necessarily Bayesian. They're neural, meaning, and this is really simplified, they take data and try to decide whether those data can be related to certain preconceived, predetermined categories. Sometimes programs are limited, and, and deep neural learning like that can help those programs do much more difficult tasks, like, for example, distinguishing handwriting as opposed to typed-out uniform fonts. Neural networks take test data, drop them into so-called input neurons that assign values to them, and then feed those values into other neurons that make various comparisons between the different data. One layer of neurons passes its results on to further layers of neurons. Each layer performs a set of minor tweaks to make their results match up with the expected set of final categories as best they can. They call this weighting. If errors occur, that means the previous layers need to alter themselves along with the latter layers. And when all of the layers' calculations sum up to the expected categories, then the network has been trained to find those categories. The problem is this process is susceptible to what they call overfitting, meaning the neural network gets really complex and then fits itself too closely to the test data, and it can't be applied to any other input. As much as we've learned about how natural neurology, meaning our brains, work, and as much as we've tried to copy that process, in fact, our brains have the speed and accuracy and adaptability of Bayesian methods. I'm repeating myself here, but remember, the very nature of such Bayesian analysis is the use of prior beliefs to make new beliefs, and in turn the repurposing of posterior beliefs as your new prior beliefs to make even better beliefs. 
this repurposing is more powerful than you might think. In my example earlier, we, we figured out the probability of a car having an automatic transmission based on the fact that someone was German. Germanness. Germanity? Nah, Germanist. Germanness is a discrete variable. You're either German or you're not. But you can do more impressive stuff when you use continuous variables. Continuous variables are ones that exist as a probability distribution, like the distribution of probabilities of landing heads once you flip a coin six times. One powerful Bayesian method that uses continuous variables and generally seems like a magic box to human intuition is the Markov chain Monte Carlo or MCMC method. I want to give credit to Ben Shaver at Medium.com, whose primer article on MCMC really helped me put this into more comprehensible terms. There's a link in the show notes. MCMC methods are used to approximate the posterior distribution of a parameter of interest by random sampling in a probabilistic space. Words. Lots of math words. So the first thing we need to know is what all those terms mean. First, we've got the parameter of interest. That's our goal, the thing we want to know, the thing we want to figure out. And it's just some number that quantifies a phenomenon we're interested in. Let's say our phenomenon, our parameter of interest, is batting average in baseball. A baseball player's batting average is the number of hits a single, double, triple, or home run that player has divided by his number of at-bats. The range of possible values is zero to a thousand. Swing and a miss, Davis going after a pitch outside. Batting a zero would mean Davis. a player got no hits per at-bat. Which, barring a miracle, would surely happen to me in a professional league. Meanwhile, batting a thousand, or 1.000, would mean getting a hit for every at-bat. That is a statistical near impossibility. Most players don't get out of their first at-bat with that average, much less a game to say nothing of a season. This is what would happen if Clark Kent decided never to reveal his superpowers and instead apply them to baseball because Chicks take the long ball. Anyhow, if we take the average out of 100 at-bats, a player might get 270 hits. This would be an average of 270 or 0.270. So that's, that's batting average. The second MCMC term we need to define is distribution. A distribution is a mathematical representation of every possible value of our parameter and how likely we are to observe each one. The most common distribution you can have would be a bell curve, and you know this. It's where you have a good chunk of the value of the parameter at the statistical mean with roughly even numbers of values above and below the mean, and those even numbers are determined by the standard deviation, which is the quantity representing how far from the mean the group as a whole deviates, so how spread out the numbers are. Let's assume for now that the distribution of batting averages for all ball players over the entire 150-year history of recorded Major League Baseball fits neatly 
into a bell curve. Remember, Bayesian analysis takes our prior beliefs into consideration. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty aware of baseball stats, so I thought I'd talk to my girlfriend, Tina. Remember, she's German, which is, you know, wonderful. She's also um, vaguely aware that baseball exists, but is um, mostly oblivious and basically indifferent to any of its particularities. If I were to say it in German, I'd say baseball is ihr Pupsigal. Give me a text message back when you get this message. It's urgent. So I contacted her like five times via voice message while she was at work. She's a physical therapist. And I told her to message me back because it was urgent so as to engender an optimal level of um, cognitive disruption. You know, for science. After some careful explanation of the rules, I asked her how many times she thought a professional batter would get a hit after a thousand at-bats. And she guessed that the mean is 300. So if we imagine a curve normally distributed around that mean, then that curve represents Tina's best guess, or in Bayesian terms, her prior distribution. Now let's say I, I, I torture poor Tina, and I make her watch every game of baseball being played in this stunted, coronified season. Which, I mean, I have the MLB app. These things are all recorded. We could, we could totally do that. We, sh- we should do that. Anyhow, if I didn't tell Tina BaseballReference.com existed <laughs> and instead made her document how absolutely every batter did in every at-bat in every game, which, you know, she has, she has time for, then she'd discover that as of the middle of August, the batting average is around 238. So we already had our prior distribution, Tina's best guess, with a mean batting average at 300. And now we have our curve based on our observations. In Bayesian terms, that's called our likelihood distribution, which summarizes basically what the observed data are telling us. It represents a range of parameter values accompanied by the likelihood that each parameter explains the data we're observing. Applying Bayesian logic, we can combine our prior distribution and our likelihood distribution and get a posterior distribution. This basically tells us which parameter values give us the best chance of observing the particular data we did. In other words, when Tina thinks about her prior guess at mean batting averages, and then she takes into account the new set of batting averages she's observed while watching Corona Ball with me, what is the best new set of batting averages she could guess for baseball players for all time? She's basically averaging out her prior and the likelihood, so she gets a curve with a mean of 269. In fact, using the extensive data we have available, I can tell you the 150-year mean batting average is 263. Tina's posterior is already really close. If I make her watch all of this season and next season, (laughs) I bet she could even get closer. But here's the problem. We might want to know about a parameter of interest that doesn't have a normal distribution. Say the loudness of vacuum cleaners in decibels. 
give you a conceivable range of decimals, normal human breathing is at 10 decibels. And most people would have to listen closely to hear it. Whispering is at about 20 decibels. ASMR is bullshit. Jackhammers at a distance of about 15 feet have about 110 decibels. Sorry. With vacuums, the variety is just enormous. There are industrial vacuums whose decibels you can imagine have a range of their own, and the Hoover to Dyson range of household vacuums. Most likely, the curve for this distribution would look all wonky, maybe even with two peaks. But when you're doing your priors, you don't think about this. You naively assume, eh, most vacuums have about the same level of loudness. You figure you would have a standard distribution and take a stab at guessing the statistical mean, say, 70 decibels. If you think about it, just focusing on one mean for the average would be misleading since you have a wonky distribution. Meanwhile, the mode, meaning the maximum decibel value that is most common among vacuums, that wouldn't be too useful either. Maybe there's a second value that's nearly as common as the mode. But none of this even occurs to you until you start taking some random samples. At that point, you collect data from several powerful industrial wet-dry shop vacs and household vacuums, street sweepers, and handheld dustbuster-like devices. Comparing your data, your likelihood distribution, with your original curve and its standard distribution doesn't seem very easy. But you know there must be a posterior distribution out there somewhere that gives the likelihood for each parameter value you've observed. That's when you need MCMC methods. Markov chain Monte Carlo methods are basically hybrids of two different tools, Markov chains and Monte Carlo simulations. Let's start with the simulations. I'm gonna stick with the classic example to help you intuit the concept. Let's make ourselves a square. And inside our square, let's draw a circle whose diameter is the length of the sides of the square. Now, imagine you wanna know the area of the circle. If you know the length of the sides of the square, let's say 10 centimeters. I live in Germany, people, I've been decimalized. Then it's, it's not hard to figure out the area of the circle. The formula for the area of a circle is pi times the square of the radius. We know the radius is five centimeters, so that means the area of the circle is about 78.54 centimeters. The Monte Carlo simulation allows you to find an approximation of the area without knowing the equation. Let's just start dropping random dots into the square. And it's important to remember that this is totally random. You don't need to have any kind of plan for where these dots go. It's not like you're playing 20 questions and you have an idea of the parameters that you tried to narrow in on. This is totally random. So we dropped 20 dots and let's say 15 of those landed inside the circle. The Monte Carlo simulation here is simple. Take that proportion, 15 over 20, and multiply it by the area of the square. The area of the square is the base times the height, so 100, and 15 divided by 20 is 0.75, so our Monte Carlo algorithm estimates that the area of the circle is 75 centimeters. It's pretty good. And the more random dots we added, the better our calculation would be. 
But of course, we already knew the equation for the area of a circle, so that was all unnecessary. But we could add any old shape inside the square. I'm thinking the silhouette of BB-8. And if we use the Monte Carlo simulation, we'd still be able to estimate its area. Okay, so that was the Monte Carlo simulation. The second part of our MCMC tool is the Markov chain. As Ben Shaver writes in his primer, Markov chains are simply sequences of events that are probabilistically related to one another. Each event comes from a set of outcomes, and each outcome determines which outcome occurs next, according to a fixed set of probabilities. There are some events we can think of as independent. One flip of a two-sided coin will influence the next flip of the same coin. The law of numbers tells us that if our sample set is large enough, we can detect probabilistic patterns, at least in independent events. So the chances of landing on heads when flipping a coin each time is one out of two. But mostly, we think of events as existing in a causal chain. To truly parse any one event, you'd have to know basically an infinite amount of information about the preceding events that influenced it. You light a birthday candle, which causes a smoke detector to go off, which scares a hedgehog in your garden, causing your neighbor's dog to chase after it into the street, where a baby, who one day will be a veterinarian, is sitting in a stroller and first casts its eyes on a dog, causing it to fall in love with animals forever. A simpler example where independence fails would be a Spotify playlist. Let's say I told you to skip ahead three songs on your playlist. If I told someone else listening to the same list to skip ahead three times, they wouldn't necessarily be on the same track. That all depends on what track they were listening to when I told them to skip ahead. Any future moves along the playlist all depend on your current position on the playlist. The moves form a Markov chain. At the turn of the last century, the Russian mathematician Andrei Markov wanted to prove that the law of large numbers can be applied to dependent variables. So he devised a method for analyzing probabilities about states of variables and possible transitions between those variables. Here's an example of that method. There are basically three possibilities I can be in while producing this episode. Sitting on my butt in front of the computer, on the, uh, the toilet, or getting something from the kitchen. That's basically it. Ask Tina. Tina's worried about my health, and she wants to make sure I'm hydrated. And you know, she would maybe like to exchange pleasantries at some point. She assumes that what room I am in at any given point is all she will need to say what room I will be in an hour later. So Tina starts to collect some statistical data, meaning she records where I am every hour for 12 hours. Afterwards, she finds that if I'm sitting on my butt in front of the computer, I am 85% likely to be on my butt in front of the computer an hour later, 10% likely to be on the toilet, and 5% likely to be getting something from the kitchen. Using a set of probabilities for each room, 
Tina can construct a chain of predictions of which state I'm likely to be in in one hour or in 100 hours. So that's the Markov chain. So now that you have the gist of Markov chains and Monte Carlo situations, it should be relatively easy to intuit how these tools work together. Remember, we're trying to estimate the posterior distribution of the loudness of vacuum cleaners. If we were measuring this on X and Y axes, the Y axis would be the number of vacuums and the X axis would be the decibel levels. MCMC methods pick a random decibel level to start with and then keep picking further points. That's the Monte Carlo part. But for any pair of randomly generated decibels, it's added to the graph based on its probability after the preceding level. Eventually, the decibel levels that I want to accept will start converging around the area representing our posterior distribution. And now we have a good posterior model of the distribution of vacuum cleaner loudness. So that's what I got. That's my best shot at explaining MCMC methods to you. But you gotta figure this method has all sorts of applications. We could use it to model natural languages, or model the size of a distant solar system, or predict how likely anyone is to visit any given website on the entire internet. Or, maybe I can give you a little preview of what Ben's going to talk about in the next episode. Let's say you cared about splitting up massive collections of individual human genomes into subgroups based on genetic variation. Then you'd want to calculate the probability distribution of genotypic data. MCMC could help you do that. It has helped do that. Do those groups that MCMC has determined add up to quote-unquote races? That's complicated. But none of that now. You've reached the end of the math part of this episode. Do you need a break? Because I do. Bathroom? Fridge? I think it's going to be both for me. Pause right now and meet me back here in just a moment. Evolution. Uh, my idea is that evolution is about progress. It is about survival of the fittest. It is about generation after generation getting better and more, achieving more perfectionism. The standard misconception, which is imposed by deep biases of Western culture. Darwin, in fact, never said that. He recognized as one of the radical claims he was making that there was nothing in his mechanism of natural selection that led to any belief in progress. Because natural selection is just a principle of adaptation to changing local environments. You improve only in the sense that you get better for your local environment. Sorry, I have to carry on the tradition I apparently set last episode of playing audio of men who've rightly been me too Charlie Rose did use to conduct a good interview, though. No excusing his, his actions, of course. Anyhow, we're listening to Rose's interview with the late Harvard paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould in 1996 about his then-newly published book, Full House, 
the spread of excellence from Plato to Darwin. Therefore, there's no general trend in the history of life. The dominant forms of life on Earth are bacterial, always have been. This is a bacterial fact, world, it's not a human world. It's the age of bacteria. It's always been the age of bacteria. Life started three and a half billion years ago with bacteria, and they've dominated ever since. Gould's thesis in his book wasn't simply to point out the mind-boggling number of bacteria alive right now. A nonillion, meaning 10 to the 30th power or about 5 million trillion trillion. Or the fact that bacteria make up about 15% of the known biomass, with 70 of the 550 total gigatons of carbon distributed among all life forms on Earth. Or the fact that bacteria would survive basically whatever catastrophic disaster you could possibly come up with. Have I um, cited enough bacteria facts? They're impressive. Nope. Gould's point was that when we regard statistical phenomena, we tend to think we're talking about essential things. In episode three of this series, you'll remember our guest, Stuart Humphrey, explained what natural kinds are. It's an ancient concept in the Aristotelian tradition, basically natural kinds are considered universals, tokens of which we are familiar with from our everyday experiences. Stephen Jay Gould, for example, is a token of the kind human being, if there is such a well-founded kind. A kind is made token by being composed in matter, but but what gives a kind its essence, its quiddity, its, its whatness, its, its thinginess, is its form. For Aristotle, forms don't exist, however, outside of their tokens. That is to say, they don't exist independently of things. For Plato, on the other hand, forms existed outside and over and above the tokens. The forms are the things. They're the thingiest of things. Tokens are just approximations of the perfect forms. For Plato, Forms are things in their perfection, and forms exist beyond the plane of our experience. But I'm making a plea that we substitute for the old platonic view of the world. Under the platonic view of the world, you look at variable systems like human beings who come in all sizes, races, sexes, colors, shapes, ages, and you try and get a single measure of the ideal human or the extremely valued trait, and then you trace that through time. So you say that human brain... Gould wants to argue that the platonic way of understanding the world is fallacious. There is no perfect form around which approximations vacillate. At least not with regard to the forms we know from the variety of organisms. Or with regard to hitting in baseball. Increases through time. What Darwin told us is that's wrong. There is no single number. There's no ideal. There's no abstraction. There's only the variation itself. And it's the variation itself that constitutes the ultimate reality. That's the spread of excellence. And if we analyze the full variation, then we'll see that bacteria dominate. If we study the full variation, we'll see that 400 hitting has disappeared in baseball because the variation has shrunk, not right. because hitting's gotten worse. Okay, well, let's explain. Slow down and let's explain that better. Uh, Ted Williams in 1941. Right, here am I. 406. 406. And we have not had a 400 hitter since then. I made the bold statement 
in the last episode that Ted Williams was not the greatest hitter who ever lived. I also qualified that by saying not by any quantifiable measure. And I stand by that. He didn't have Ty Cobb's batting average or as many home runs as Barry Bonds, Hank Aaron, or Babe Ruth. He didn't have as strong a slugging percentage as Ruth. The one stat that has always seemed outstanding for Ted Williams was that he was the last player to ever hit over 400. But here's Stephen Jay Gould telling us, well, that was just bound to happen. Gould is asserting that before 1941, the best players were further from the average than they are now, and so while the statistical mean stays the same, the outliers continuously get squeezed in because all of the players, pitchers, catchers, fielders, all of them are constantly getting better. Oh, that's the paradox, Charlie, because between 1900 and 1930, 400 averages were achieved by seven different players in nine of those years, so it was pretty common and hasn't been done for 55 years. So most people assume that has to mean that hitting has gotten worse in some sense, which doesn't make sense for exactly the reason you said. Everything in sports gets better. People are bigger, stronger, better trained. There are more of us. Men of all races can play now. You know, it just doesn't make any sense. But we're stuck in our old platonic habits. You see, we think 400 hitting is a thing. a thing measuring excellence, that it went away, and therefore hitting has to have gotten worse, and we try to invent some reason. Too many night games, they aren't as tough as they used to be, like Ty Cobb. Or Ted, Schedules Willi- or Ted Williams was a Mozart of our time. Yeah, right. I, yeah, no, Ted Williams himself actually believes those <laughs> notions, but it doesn't make any sense. You have to reconceptualize the whole issue. 400 hitting is not a thing. It's simply the extreme value in a range of variation of batting averages. There are several hundred major league players. Each one compiles a batting average each year. You can make a frequency distribution, or bell curve as it's called, of those batting averages. And when you do that, it's very interesting. The average batting average has never changed in the history of baseball. It's always been around 260. It varies a little bit, but then they change the rules to bring it back. Now, but a batting average isn't like running a mile or throwing a discus. It's not an absolute measure. It's a balance. It's a balance between hitting and pitching or hitting and other aspects of the game. So the fact that it's stayed 260 doesn't mean that absolute quality of play is the same. I think what it means is that hitting and pitching have gotten better together. The balance has been maintained, so the average batting average is still 260. Now, all that's happened, as everyone's gotten better, the variation has shrunk. Gould's thesis is that no shortcoming is more endemic to the human condition than the belief in distinct entities, things with discrete borders. As he writes in his essay, The Median is Not the Message, which served as the precursor to his book, we still carry the historical baggage of a platonic heritage that seeks sharp essences and definite boundaries. Thus, we hope to find an unambiguous beginning of life or definition of death although nature often comes to us as irreducible continua. This platonic heritage, with its emphasis on clear distinctions and separated immutable entities, leads us to view statistical measures of central tendency wrongly, indeed opposite to the appropriate interpretation of our actual world of variation, shadings, and continua. In short, 
We view means and medians as hard realities, and the variation that permits their calculation as a set of transient and imperfect measurements of this hidden essence. But evolutionary biologists know that variation itself is nature's only irreducible essence. Variation is the hard reality, not a set of imperfect measures for a central tendency. Means and medians are the abstractions. Gould has other examples of this mental foible to search for distinct essences where there aren't any, other than just 400 hitting. For one, the, the tendency to see progress toward more complexity in evolution when in fact bacteria have always reigned, reign now and shall ever reign till world's end. Another major example is very personal for him, and it's one that touches all of us eventually, either regarding ourselves directly or family members or close friends. The mortality rate of a cancer diagnosis. In 1982, Gould was diagnosed with abdominal mesothelioma, a rare sort of cancer with a median life expectancy of eight months after diagnosis, meaning that half of all people who got a diagnosis like his were dead within that period of time. His doctor didn't want to mention those statistics because, in her experience, people interpret that to mean they only have a 50% chance of living for more than eight months. They think they are overwhelmingly likely to die within that time. Gould, however, was a trained evolutionary biologist and a paleontologist, and he was aware that variation is the reality. One of the most famous uses of Bayes' theorem asks how likely you are to really have cancer if one test with 99% accuracy comes back positive. And it turns out the probability is only 0.02. You're 20% more likely than the rest of the population to have the cancer you tested positive for. But the total likelihood of your having that cancer after one such diagnosis is actually vanishingly small. Anyhow, Gould reasoned that 50% of the people who receive his diagnosis go on to live longer. Most people say, oh my God, that means I'll probably be dead in eight months. But I've had statistical training, and I believe that every individual is an individual and that the average doesn't mean a whole lot. It's just an abstraction for calculation. So I realized that's not what it means. It doesn't mean I'll probably be dead in eight months. It means that of all the people who have this disease, half indeed do die within eight months of diagnosis. But there's a whole other half that live longer. And the question I had to ask was, am I likely to be in that other half that lives longer? And since half are going to die, between zero and eight months, that doesn't leave a whole lot of space for the lower half of the curve, but the upper half of the curve could extend out to normal lifetimes. So these tools are helpful, but there's always a danger of mistaking what they are and what they can do. They aren't ways of getting at real, essential data. And we've been burned by this sort of tendency to think statistical means and percentages are essential things before. I can think of one such number which pervades our daily lives right now. Or at least it pervades mine. Everywhere I go, mostly everyone wears masks indoors. They stay distant. Admission to buildings is limited. 
If you sit down or attend a public activity, you have to leave your contact details. Testing for the coronavirus is abundant, sometimes obligatory, always affordable, and often free. Germany is diligent about tackling the pandemic. And to effectively manage the outbreak, there's one stat everyone looks to regularly. The R number, sometimes called RT in English, the real-time effective reproductive number. Yes, yeah, that's, in principle, that's very, very simple. This is a number which tells you whether a pandemic is in, in the increase or in the decrease. That's Heiko Becher, head of the epidemiology department at the UKE Hamburg, the teaching hospital at the university where Ben and I teach, the University of Hamburg. Imagine every day we observe the same number of new infections over a long time. That would mean the R number is exactly one. That means on average, one person transmits the disease to one other person, on average. But this could be that one person infects 10 people and nine others, nobody else. So it's just an average. There are actually two R values. First comes the basic reproduction number, R0 or more commonly R0, which is only really useful at the beginning of a pandemic. That's the number you would get in a population that hasn't accrued any immunity through people getting infected or through distribution of vaccines. As you can imagine, it's a highly conjectural number when a virus is new, like the coronavirus was at the beginning of the year. And so epidemiologists use MCMC methods to calculate it. The R0 is a classic example of an abstraction that people treat as a thing. Consider measles. We've had hundreds of years of experience with measles, and we've seen sudden outbreaks in susceptible populations lots of times. We know how it spreads. Someone with measles can cough in a room, and then hours later, others can still catch it by breathing in the particles they left behind floating in the air. So we have a highly accurate idea of measles are not and it's incredibly high, about 15. By comparison, the r naught for Ebola is about 1.5, and yet Ebola is exceptionally contagious. Any contact with the slightest of body fluids of a person, or even a dead body, infected with Ebola is a potential death sentence. So you shouldn't exactly think of the r naught as a measure of contagiousness. That would be thinking of the r naught as an immutable quality of the disease. Ebola is just absurdly contagious and terribly deadly. It basically stops people's blood from clotting, and so they just start bleeding inside and out until they die. And it happens quickly. But for that very reason, it doesn't have anywhere near as high an r naught as measles. Measles take two weeks to incubate, and most people get flu-like symptoms and, of course, that rash. That doesn't mean that you should think of measles as harmless. That's the anti-vaxxer mistake. Before the measles vaccine was introduced in 1963, more than 500 people died of measles per year in the U.S. alone. And in 2019, thousands more people in the Democratic Republic of Congo died of measles than of Ebola. Contagiousness and deadliness are statistical tendencies. And are not is one means by which epidemiologists tackle those tendencies. The other number, the RT, 
is the one we obsessively pay attention to here in Germany now. It's the reproductive number once the proverbial cat is out of the epidemiological bag. In other words, it's the number of people in a population that can be infected by any one person at any specific time after a certain level of immunity has begun to develop within the population. The RT, or you could just call it the R number, changes as the population becomes more and more immunized. And that can either happen after people have been infected or gotten a vaccination. The R number also takes into account when people die. It sounds morbid, but every person who's dead is one fewer person infecting others. Once an outbreak has happened, generally communities take lockdown measures, and so the R number starts hovering around one. And that becomes the base measure by which epidemiologists can decide whether the outbreak is more or less under control. One means the disease uh, won't completely disappear, but it won't increase the number. And if the number is below one, that's what we, um, we all hope in the moment. That would mean that the, the disease is dying out after some time. Germans are soccer fans, of course, and soccer is more fluid and doesn't lend itself as easily to stats as baseball. Although, more on that in a bit. But in the case of the R number, here's a stat Germans watch as obsessively as a bro named Craig cultivating his fantasy baseball team by watching his pitcher's ERAs. Fluctuations in specific numbers of infections and deaths in Germany seem absurdly small and, I mean, let's be honest, quite frankly, enviable by American standards. But they're up higher in Germany over the past month, even as the numbers have begun to recede in the US. Nonetheless, from the beginning, Germany has kept at least one eye on the R number as a measure for when and how they can tactically increase or scale back restrictions on citizens' movements. In fact, no one has done more to popularize the R number and justify the ways of epidemiologists to people than Angela Merkel in her famous speech to the German nation in mid-April. The difficulty in the R estimation is simply the fact that we do not know exactly how many people get infected every day. And you can observe that if you look at the daily numbers. On the weekends, usually the numbers go down and on Mondays they go up again. That doesn't mean that less people can get infected on Saturday and Sunday. It's just uh, a matter of reporting. And so it goes up and down. Uh, you see a weekly pattern and the estimation process of the R take that into account to a certain degree, but not completely. So this R estimation goes with a certain level of uncertainty and it's simply not possible to give an exact number. Basically, the lag comes from the fact that verifiable information on true infections and deaths take a long time to gather. Institutes like the CDC in the US and the Robert Koch Institute, or RKI in Germany, can also make use of other proxy information to get at the rates of infection in a roundabout way. You know, factors like hospital admissions data or contact surveys like they do here in Germany basically everywhere or tracing smartphone metadata to trace people's movements. 
just as a side note, it's ironic seeing the EU and Germany in particular embracing this sort of privacy infiltration in light of the protections they've been pushing for over the last few years. If you happen to notice your experience of the internet getting a little more annoying back around May of 2018 because you started having to swat away pop-ups asking for you to okay their use of private data or else no website for you, well, you can basically thank Germany for that. Anyhow, epidemiologists run Bayesian probability calculations to match these personal data with rates of infection. But probability is, by definition, uncertainty. So there's a compromise here. You could be more certain about the R number's validity, but then you have to wait 10 days or so. That's not very satisfactory when the R number is supposed to help you quickly make decisions about loosening or tightening restrictions on personal freedoms. Or you can use other proxy data and be a bit faster, but then your accuracy suffers. The other point, the R value does not take you into account properly whether there is an outbreak somewhere. As we have observed in this meat producing industry, where we had many new cases, but in other places in Germany, we have almost none, as here in Hamburg, for example. I conducted this interview back in July, and at the time, the daily infection rates were mostly very low, between 0 and 10 in most German federal states. But there was an outbreak, a familiar story I'm sure to most Americans, at a meat processing factory in the town of Gütesloh. And that number had an outsized effect several days later on the R number. And so the R is also an average all over Germany which may be not appropriate, but on the other hand, it's not possible to give a sort of a map of R over an area. So what we see is an overall R value for Germany uh, on the whole. And because of this outbreak, we observed an R value which was far above one. And now it's going down again. We have to observe the R value over a long period and um, shouldn't be too afraid if one day it goes up to values above one. That's especially true if your country took a coherent and diligent stand against the outbreak back around the time of R0. Germany did. The United States decidedly didn't. So you might see an R number fluctuate in Germany above that of the US. In fact, we've seen that on some days recently. But an R number above one in a location with hundreds of thousands of active infections is a lot more trouble than an R number above one in a location with maybe just a thousand. You'd need to do some tricky factoring in of variance from the standard deviation to get a better idea of how often these super spreading events take place. And you'd soon realize that those events happen less often in places where they've been happening less often since the outbreak. Remember, the R number is not a thing. I've heard epidemiologists in the United States humbly saying that they, at, at the beginning of this pandemic, they didn't exactly blanket themselves in glory. Mm. <laughs> uh, but they said that the delay phenomenon that, that you've described has been particularly aggravating because they're, they're trying to provide the public with the best information they possibly can. And it's not predictive, but it is probabilistic. And probabilistic information is a range and it's not a, 
a specific number. Mm, yeah. And and so is it the case that people in, interpret numbers, for example, the R number, as a kind of essential and not probabilistic and, and that people misinterpret the nature of that number when they hear it and to their own detriment in, in their interpretation? Um, maybe yes. Uh, just for that reason, the head of the RKE always emphasizes that uh, with the estimate of the R value, there is a range of uncertainty with it. And a number just below one could as well be a value just above one and, and vice versa. Only if it's very far away from one, uh, you can pretty sure that the pandemic is in, in its increase or in its decrease. If I talk to, to my friends or so, uh, probably they're more educated than the average people, but they're perfectly aware of the fact that any estimate whether it's the R value or, or whether it's any anything else, goes with a certain level of uncertainty and has to be interpreted uh, accordingly. Well, if I talk to my mother, for example, uh, she's an old lady, over 90 years old, and of course, it would be difficult to discuss uh, matters of probability with her. And um, well, that's, that is a difficult matter to, to get a real feeling about uh, probability, a feeling on risk. That's one of the issues I worked on in the past, risk communication. So what's a risky behavior compared to others? So if people are afraid to take the plane because the plane may crash down, I keep saying, well, the most dangerous part is a trip from your home to the airport. So the people just <laughs> have difficulties in believing this. <laughs> just, just risk communication and uh, risk perception, that's difficult for many people. If you're like me, because we're about a month and a half shy of the elections in the U.S., you find yourself looking at the state and national polls on 538 and trying to glean something emotionally reassuring from those polls. And you just want to throw a hacky sack at Nate Silver's freshly grown beard every time he reminds you that the voters' motivations are fluid and changing and the polls are just a snapshot in time and blah, blah, blah. We hope the fundamentals of elections are unchanging that the overarching trends inevitably prevail, even if factors on the margins change in any election. So something like it's the economy stupid is, we hope, a reliable shortcut to predicting the outcome of an election. Or we might hope that polling from September will be more reliable than polling from July. And the trends say they will be. But taking results from elections based on polling from September 1936 into account, when estimating how predictive a poll in September 2020 will be, is dicey. The U.S. population in 1936 was 128 million. Women and people of color were drastically more disenfranchised in 1936. There were only 48 states. The means of polling were different. If the phenomena you're trying to analyze are constantly shifting, like the ship of Theseus, that comparing the past to the present 
can be like comparing apples and oranges. And predicting the future based on the past becomes less and less valuable. Let's think back to Ted Williams. His severed head is now frozen along with his son's head in a sealed vat in a strip mall somewhere in, mm, yep, Florida. The circumstances under which the decision to have his body cryogenically frozen are a little sketchy, but the motivation comports with Ted Williams as I grok him. Ted didn't believe in any traditional afterlife as defined by a religion, and he was pretty outspoken about that. He figured there's no solution to death now, but medicine slowly but steadily improves. So the greatest risk, as far as he could assess it, would be to not preserve his body for possible future resuscitation. His final decision was in line with how he lived his life. Becoming the greatest hitter meant taking whatever he could gather from his past hitting and applying it to each and every following hit, forging form from out of the irreducible continua. Two neurologists at Columbia, Jason Sherwin and Jordan Maraskin, decided in 2018 to observe the act of pitch classification, at least the part being done by the brains so much more acute than others, of major league hitters. They used electroencephalography to observe the neuronal correlatives of hitters' many snap decisions in real time. At 95 miles per hour, it takes roughly 400 milliseconds for a baseball to reach home plate from the pitcher's mound, 60 feet 6 inches away. And 95 miles per hour has long since ceased to be a particularly fast fastball. Several pitchers in the majors pitch fastballs over 95 miles per hour on average. Pitchers use long strides for control and deceptive windups to deceive the batter, so discriminating decisions about what sort of pitch is approaching and whether to swing beyond the statistically informed expectations running semi-consciously through a hitter's head while the pitcher's doing his thing, happens during those 400 milliseconds from the mound to the plate. Ted Williams hit that homer in his final at-bat in the majors on September 28, 1960. It's been exactly 60 years. And during Ted's long, strange odyssey in the cryogenic vat, the suitors to the honorific of greatest hitter have been venturing to conquer uncertainty in his stead. We may be able to see synapses popping in correlation with hitters' decisions in real time, but helping hitters make those decisions still requires post-hoc Bayesian probability. And the discontents remain. Rogers Hornsby and Honus Wagner were great players, but so was George Davis, a turn-of-the-century shortstop who didn't garner any attention until Bill James made a sabermetric case for him in 1995. 
DJ LeMayu and Mike Trout have put up indescribable offensive numbers in 2020. But by some measures, I might just rather have Freddie Freeman on my team. The problem really arises when you compare LeMayu or Trout or Freeman with Hornsby and Wagner and Davis. There's a lot of time between those players. And that's a little more, you know, problematic, right? Well, certainly there's a difference between looking at performance that has already happened, that's on the books already, and projecting future performance, because it's not as simple as just looking at what the player did last year and saying, well, he'll probably do that again. (laughs) That would be easy. If you're a baseball stat wonk, or you just like the kinds of nerdy things I like, you might recognize that voice. That's Ben Lindbergh, co-host of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast writer for Ringer.com and co-host of the Ringer MLB show, and the author of The MVP Machine, how baseball's new conformists are using data to build better players. I mean, that is kind of the basis of projection systems, historically speaking. That's essentially how they've worked. They've taken, say, three years of past data and taken into account the ballpark and the run environment, how many runs are being scored at that time, and also the player's age. Is he at the point where he is more likely to improve or decline? And then it will produce a a projection that will probably not be drastically different from what the player has done before. Although, of course, some players surprise us and there may be more players surprising us these days because there are all these new player development techniques and technologies. So someone might change their swing or learn a new pitch or refine an old pitch or start throwing their better pitch more. And then suddenly they will reach a new level of performance. And so if you're only looking at their past performance to project their future performance, there's not going to be any indication in there that they are about to reach that new level. It is nice and neat when it's all said and done and the career is over and we can look back at it. And of course, you've got giant samples. So to have 10 years, 15 years or more of data on a player's entire career gives us a a better sense of what he was when it's in the rearview mirror than we have even just looking at, say, the current season or last season. There are still some sample size issues, even though the baseball season is quite long. There's still some random variation and some things that we can't measure so precisely that still benefit from having a bigger sample to judge, judge by. Oh, gosh, there's so many, so many ideas coming from that question. And that's Adam Dorowski. He's made a name for himself in analyst circles by using a variation of the war statistic that's become the prime stat for appraising player performance and applying it in historical contexts in order to decide which player should, statistically speaking, and all other things not considered, be in the Hall of Fame. He and I worked together back in the early 2000s in another lifetime when I was a textbook editor and he was a programmer. He's one of the most obsessive deep divers I know. The first one would be when comparing across eras, I make a point when I compare, I'm saying that this player compared to his peers was better than this player compared to his peers. I don't think you could say, let's take Ty Cobb. He you know, played 100 years ago. Every player in Major League Baseball today might be better than Ty Cobb was if you put them next to each other. Uh, that's probably, <laughs> it might be a very real thing. 
uh, just because the human performance level has Im improved so much. I mean, just look at runners' times and things like that. It's it's just not even on the same level. There aren't players like Ty Cobb anymore, really, who just sort of slap the ball around and run around. There's Ichiro, or, or there was until recently, but that has kind of gone out of style. And Ty Cobb was someone who didn't adjust even his, in his own time because he was a, co a contemporary of Babe Ruth. And during Ty Cobb's career, Babe Ruth sort of transformed the swing and showed that you could hit the ball over the fence. And Ty Cobb was not into that, although he was still very good at what he did. So I think, yes, there are improvements that could be made, but today's players are, are better for a lot of reasons. So it's been a few decades now that the use of data has been used by contrarians to use your words to, yeah. to alter baseball in ways that have seemed counterintuitive to con conventional wisdom. Could you maybe just recount the history? Well, I think it's gone through stages and phases. So there are certainly things that Bill James was writing back in the 70s or Pete Palmer or some of the other sabermetric pioneers, Earnshaw Cook, even earlier than that in the 60s. I mean, people were saying things that certainly would have been considered counterintuitive and, and contrarian at the time compared to baseball dogma. It's only really in the past, say, 20 years or not even quite 20 years that these things have really migrated into the game so that it's not just a small community of outsiders on the internet or on Usenet or just writing books and newsletters and involved in Sabre, the Society for American Baseball Research. Now it's people inside the game. And so that has produced dramatic changes on the field in terms of say, you know, in-game tactics, it's it's very obvious to see the effect where you get very few sacrifice bunts compared to how many you used to get and fewer intentional walks and pitch outs and hit and runs, all these old school tactics that various analyses showed probably weren't that effective or were counterproductive. They have become increasingly rare. So that was kind of the Moneyball first phase, you know, early 2000s when people inside the game really started putting these older insights to, to use. One of the hallmarks of the Moneyball era was, and this continues to today, the quest for a more perfect measure of performance. Just focusing on offense, the traditional measure has always been, you know, batting average. Hitting over 400 is like breaking the sound barrier. We still venerate a strong batting average, but the BA has long been considered insufficient for assessing all of the offensive skills that a great position player brings to the table, or the plate, if I want to mix my metaphors. The ability to work counts, foul off pitches, maintain patience, force a walk, none of that is reflected in batting average. In the 40s, on-base percentage was devised by a statistician named Alan Roth for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Basically, that's a player's hits, plus his walks, plus the number of times he's been hit by a pitch, all added up and divided by the sum of his at-bats, his walks, and the number of times he's been hit by a pitch, and a sacrifice flies. Into the 50s, Dodgers general manager Branch Rickey sung the praises of OBP as an all-encompassing equation for measuring a player's offensive contribution, but then he realized that offensive contribution needed to be weighted for a quote-unquote extra base power. And he devised a precursor of the equation that today we call slugging percentage. 
the number of singles plus the number of doubles times two, triples times three, and home runs times four all added up and divided by the number of at-bats. Several pioneering statisticians tried their hands at combining these two, and it was Pete Palmer and John Thorne who came up with the elegant idea just to add them up to make OPS, on-base plus slugging. But it didn't take long for statisticians to question the basic principles of their practice. The point of stats isn't to measure individual players' glory, at least not as far as the teams are concerned. The point was to measure individual players' contributions to winning games. But that's where war comes in. It's a whole bunch of components of things that happen on the baseball field. There's batting, there's base running, there's fielding, there's the value of the position that you play. And all of those are given a rating of runs above or below average. So whether you hit above the average player, the uh, base running is above the average player. The position one is interesting because a average shortstop is much harder to find than an average first baseman. So that has a monetary value in this wins above replacement system. The currency of that being uh, runs above average. And that's all put together. And then where you get the wins above replacement is they compare that to where a replacement level player is freely available. So an average baseball player is actually incredibly valuable because there's a limited number of them. So you can't just be like, well, this guy is is two wins above average. And that doesn't really mean anything when you're like constructing a roster because you can't replace him. Or if someone's a win below average, that's actually not bad because you can't replace a player with an average player. You can't just get those. Those are like $15 million a year. But a replacement level player is somebody that you can pull up from AAA. So that this is like something that's more tangible. Like he's a, he's a win below the very next guy I could just pull off the line. So that's why wins above replacement has gained attraction rather than a wins above average. But in a Hall of Fame context, I think the wins above average matter more. So where I've tweaked the formula for the Hall of Stats is I've um, added special weights to the runs above average to give them more value in the in the formula. And then what I do is every single player has a score and what are there 222 people in the Hall of Fame I think. I just boot everybody out and I literally just take the top 222 and say that's the Hall of Stats. So that means it's the same size. That tension between the value of war versus your weighted war is interesting. Bill James doesn't like war, right? At least is uh, for building teams, but it, when it still matters and there are still games being played. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I understand him correctly, he thinks it's too watered watered down. It, it accounts for too many things. And the price you pay for, for weighting so many different factors and, and contributions is that it's that's too high for him. Again, if I understand him correctly, do you, do you agree? I think people need to be careful of using like single seasons of war and saying, well, this player is 6.9 wins above replacement and this player is 6.6. So the first one is clearly better. You you still can't do that. It is a estimate of the value that the player provided. I will say that right now. It is an estimate. It is not a true representation. It is the best that we have, but I think that it works better across the length of a career than it does maybe in a single season. The The most valuable player award, I think their war might not even be the right figure for it because 
you know, even though it's called Winds of Our Replacement, the most valuable player should include things like players who uh, performed in the clutch, which is completely left out of, of Winds of Our Replacement. So it might be like a win probability added. Uh, that's another statistic that uses like, basically you have a win probability before this player got up to the plate and you have a win probability after and whatever happened in between those two times is is applied to the batter like david ortiz and, or, oh my gosh back in the day i mean like i mean manny ramirez certainly had a better war better ops but but who did you want at the plate in the 12th inning of a of a one one run playoff game definitely ortiz right what is what is his war actually like his war is not that great because uh the dh position gets gets dinged big time because it's a, an incredibly low value position if you can even call it a position and he played it forever we're literally talking inside baseball here maybe i should explain that a dh is a designated hitter meaning his one and only job is to hit in the lineup and he usually doesn't do any fielding so that i mean the other side of that is that edgar martinez also played about that much at dh and his hall rating is way above David Ortiz and people weren't voting for him for what it took him forever to get in. Yeah. David Ortiz though, he's one that would look much better through something like a win probability added because he just, the timing he had was just incredible. And that's, that's worth something. That's not something that's in war. So it's not something that's in hall rating. Uh, so David Ortiz actually falls short by hall rating, but I would put him in because of the, the clutch performances he had in the regular season over and over in the postseason you know these add to his hall of fame case and should be recognized one way you could frame the moneyball era is quasi-marxist it was chiefly motivated by capital over labor teams and managers wanted to harness these means of measuring and appraising performance and put that knowledge to use but over the past roughly five years teams have begun to augment their knowledge with ever more exact and I mean shockingly exact, technology that has turned the baseball stadium into a weird sort of panopticon. And because of these advancements, the tables have turned. And labor, the individual players, have begun to improve themselves with a precision unimaginable just a decade ago. That really started in a public way. In the late 2007, 2008 was the first season that every MLB park had pitch FX, which was the first publicly available system that tracked every pitch and gave us pitch type and velocity and movement and location. And that enabled us to do a whole lot of stuff that we couldn't do before because we didn't have a record of where each pitch was and how much it moved and what each pitch was even. So once you're able to get that, then you can quantify things like, well, how valuable is a certain pitch type? Something like fastballs being de-emphasized somewhat in recent years, that's a product of looking at the numbers and seeing that it turns out that some pitchers' off-speed pitches and breaking balls are really effective and they are not throwing them enough, and so they should probably throw them more. And so... The next stage after that, after Pitch FX was StatCast, which started in 2015. And that tracks everything, more or less. So fielders and also batted balls and pitch balls. And so now there's just better data on positioning, on 
running, on hitting, uh, everything really can be quantified in a much more granular way than it could have in the past. So that has enabled some different tactical changes. It's enabled a lot of player development changes because you can see with much greater detail what players are doing currently and what they might be able to do better. And it really just keeps inching closer and closer toward some total knowledge or approximation of total knowledge because now you have other tools that are tracking the player's movements, their swings, their mechanics, you know, and then you can quantify, well, can they change their swing? Can they lower their arm to reduce some stress in their delivery? All of these things that in the past, maybe an experienced baseball person, a former player could eyeball and say, this could be better, but that was based on one person's opinion and sort of subjective. And now there is a number for just about everything. Let me just uh, lay my cards out on the table here. We're, we're a philosophy podcast, and we're particularly interested in categories and how they're formed. You mentioned pitch FX and its classification of pitch types. How, how does that work? Are the classifications like controlled by the self-reporting of the pitcher or something? Because I mean, that if the pitcher's using the system to get more, a more microscopic look at the pitch, that feels like you're putting the cart before the horse. So, so how does that work? Yeah, that's a a tricky question because sometimes a a pitcher will call a pitch type something, but it behaves more like what we generally understand a different pitch type to behave. So, you know, maybe he calls it a curve or something, but it's uh, more like a slider or or a slurve, which is sort of the intermediate category. So... Yes, then you have to decide, well, he calls it that, so should we just call it what he calls it? And for analytical purposes, I think it's probably generally more useful, I guess, to just go with the characteristics of the pitch. Tom Tango, who is the stats director for MLB, I think he recently rolled out a a new pitch classification schema, sort of, where it's just based entirely on how the pitch behaves and you don't have to do research and talk to the pitcher and say hey what do you call this thing it's just it moves this much and it spins this much and it's that fast and we know that that typically means that it's a change up or whatever you know and so you kind of lump it in with all of those was interested, so I took a deep dive into how pitch classification works. As it turns out, PitchFX was deprecated and abandoned for another system, TrackMan, back in 2017. They both basically use multiple neural networks to analyze hyper-precise camera data, and then they machine-learn pitch types. But since the variation between pitchers' pitches and the kinds of pitches the claim they're throwing was so broad... The neural networks needed more powerful Bayesian tools. So among other things, analysts used, you guessed it, MCMC to map out multiple factors like horizontal versus vertical break, velocity, spin rate, the spin axis, and braking distance in probabilistic space, and then set boundaries around the pitch types. Those dizzying 400 milliseconds from the mound to the plate are how pitches are made. Probabilities compile upon probabilities, not just in the hitter's mind, 
but in the technology surveying the pitch to trace the contours of things that both exist and don't yet. And as pitchers adjust their fingers and hitters fine-tune their swings, those contours become more real. These trackman and StatCast data may be promising something like total knowledge, as Ben says. But as the other Ben, Ben my co-host, points out, these machines aren't giving you something new. They may have more granular data, but they're stuck with probability and uncertainty just like we are. Nevertheless, as players make use of augmented data and seemingly indifferent stochastic analysis to supplement themselves, they do get better. A lot better. Ben Lindbergh and his co-author, 538 journalist Travis Sawchick, populate their book with stories of players who have pulled themselves from seeming mediocrity to superior performance through the rigorous use of these tools. There's Rich Hill, a journeyman pitcher who was shown trackman data by then Red Sox pitcher developer Brian Bannister. The data revealed that his curveball was exceptional and that he should use it a lot more often than his fastball. Or there was Marlon Bird, a struggling hitter who'd been caught using performance-enhancing drugs. Bird was helped deeply by a hitting consultant named Doug Lada, who I mentioned in the last episode, to reinvigorate his swing. Lada's major contribution has been to use data to back up an insight Ted Williams actually offered in the science of hitting back in 1970, but had largely been ignored. An upward swing that gets the ball in the air and away from the fielders is more effective. But the book also tells the story of elite players like Mookie Betts, erstwhile, <sighs> that still hurts, Red Sox, and now Dodger right fielder, who was willing to alter his already dominant swing to improve by increments. But as the players, both those already dominant and the ones aspiring to reach new heights, have adopted the insights of all this new data and technology, the game itself is becoming more homogeneous. Well, there are certainly ways in which it has made certain attributes more common for instance, you have, you know, say a, a pitcher who has a high spin fastball, it spins a lot. And you have some pitchers who have high spin fastballs and others who have low spin fastballs. And it used to be that you would always be taught to pitch down in the zone. But it turns out that if you have a high spin fastball, you should throw high in the zone because it's very difficult for hitters to correctly judge where the pitch will actually be and they'll end up swinging under it. And it's more effective if you throw high. So there was this tradition of throw at the knees, throw at the knees. But now that you can quantify spin rate, which previously was just not something you could detect. I mean, maybe you would have a hitter or a coach say, oh, he's got a lot of hop on his fastball or something like that. Just it it ended up looking higher than it actually was um, because it, the spin resists the effect of gravity and it doesn't fall by as much as, as you expect it to. But there was no way to quantify that. There was no technology that could pick it up, or at least no technology that was used in baseball. And so 
now you have pitchers who have these high spin fastballs. They're desirable. People want them. And when they appear, then they're instructed differently. They're instructed to throw high in the zone as opposed to the old saw about low in the zone. So that's, I guess, an example where something has become more common and prioritized entirely because the data was able to detect it. There are other player traits. I mean, certain things like strikeout rate, for instance, in baseball has increased for 14 consecutive seasons now, which is a result of the quantification of strikeouts, how effective strikeouts are for pitchers and how effective velocity is. So we keep recruiting pitchers who can throw harder and harder, and then they strike out more and more batters. And also we found out that For batters, somewhat paradoxically, striking out isn't all that bad compared to other outs, at least. And so if you're a hitter who hits a lot of home runs and walks a lot and the downside of that is strikeouts, that's okay. It all works out in the end because strikeouts are are not so bad that they're not worth the other good things that you do. So it has definitely change the game in that way or or maybe you mentioned the shift for instance if there's someone who constantly pulls the ball into the shift and is unable to adjust and has a very clear pattern of batted balls that you're able to defend him very easily then that type of player maybe will have a worse chance of staying in the league and so there's kind of a natural selection that goes on definitely as we become better able to quantify certain things there are certain traits that are perceived as more desirable and players will adapt their performance accordingly has has it been worth it that's the question that arises in my mind that is you know i i like i love the red sox i'm kind of an american league guy and there's already the designated hitter in the american league which kind of already takes away from a lot of the small ball action but i i really love manager moves and small ball pitch outs that kind of thing is fun for me it, it makes the game more enjoyable has has all of this advancement actually really made the game better or is it worse it's definitely different and the players are better so the the talent level is higher and so in that sense it's better there are players doing things today that players didn't used to do if you transported the current players back in time they would look like superheroes or something or if you transported forward the greats of a previous era they might not look quite as great anymore and that's a good i think if you want to see a sport played at the highest possible level i think we're getting closer to that level or that level keeps climbing Whether that has made the game more entertaining, I don't think there's a a clear case that that's true. I I mean, for people who are interested in sabermetrics and like to look at the game that way, I think it has enhanced their enjoyment of it. It certainly has for me. Just being able to dig into these numbers and this data, that's a way in which I appreciate the game. But I don't know that the actual gameplay itself is better. I think there are certainly more strikeouts and fewer balls in play and fewer stolen bases and things that a lot of fans consider exciting have become less common because they are not the optimal way to play if all you care about is winning. So in that sense, I don't know that baseball is better off. It's, it's one of those things. I mean, do I think it's as fun to watch as, you know, maybe 1980s small ball and things like that? 
I, I would say maybe I, I don't like it as much. I do like more of a, uh, I do like a small ball. I do like, I, I actually like the pitchers hitting in the National League. I'm just a weirdo like that. Most statistically minded people are like, no, they should be DH everywhere. I would rather have the pitcher batting in both leagues uh, just because that's the way that it was. You know, I, I'm, I'm a stat nerd, but I'm also absolutely a baseball history nerd. So I, I kind of like things going that way. And yeah, I think for the most part, it just comes down to taste. And if people want to watch it, they can. If they don't want to watch it, they don't have to. This is how things are made. And I mean everything. Trends, genres, forms of media, cuisines, taxonomies, theories, norms, emotions. This is how they're made. At least as far as we can know them and put limits around them. The contingencies of the world occur. Randomness occurs. And we can use tools and formulas to navigate them. But when we do that, we change the parameters just a little bit, causing effects we don't expect. Average players are the measuring stick, the unit, by which we establish a statistic like war. And paradoxically, it's also one of the tools with which players are constantly being rendered more average, making something like 400 hitting disappear. And meanwhile, because we have so much technology helping make the game more precise, the game itself is changing. As the journalist J.P. Hoonstra has pointed out, because StatCast can so accurately call balls and strikes. Some minor leagues have just eliminated the home base umpire. If you get rid of the umpire, however, you might not need the catcher crouching down to catch the ball and establish the strike zone anymore. If there were a base runner on base, the catcher could just stand wherever it's easiest to throw out the base runner. And if there were no one on base, you might not even need the catcher to catch the ball at all. It would fundamentally change the game, which is a predicament. A buddy of mine, Owen O'Carroll, is a technology editor at the Christian Science Monitor. He's been publicly writing updates on his experiment with buying an old-school flip phone and abstaining from his iPhone because of, as he writes it, overuse, online empathy, surveillance capitalism, and misinformation. Owen's experiment is one way in which machine learning is not like us. The German philosopher Martin Heidegger. Like Woody Allen and Charlie Rose, we've decided he was an inveterate misogynist and even worse, a Nazi sympathizer. But nevertheless, he expanded phenomenology and helped lay the groundwork for existentialism. Heidegger created the concept of Geworfenheit, or thrownness. At birth, you were thrown into the absurdity of the material world. And by dint of your conscious experience, you cannot help but judge it normatively. So far, I haven't witnessed any AI that seemed to be dealing with this predicament. We can limit ourselves. We can abstain when it seems like something is controlling us, rather than us controlling it. We can change the rules to make the game work as we judge fit. 
I've kept you listening to this episode for a while. I won't keep you for too much longer. But I hope you've figured out, so to speak, by now, that time is one of the hidden themes of these past two episodes. The other is subjective experience. Even when we are nascently conscious little babies, the nexus of those two factors, time and subjective experience, is where the process of modeling the world and the things in it takes place. Compare it to the ancient Greek mythological figures Scylla and Charybdis. Somewhere in the fog of forgotten time and in ancient mariners' imaginations, there emerged two monsters on either side of a strait. On the one side of the strait is Scylla. A monster with four eyes, 12 tentacles, a cat's tail, and six canine heads. She lived inside a massive rock formation and would decimate any ship that dared come too near. And on the other side was Charybdis, who lived under a smaller rock beneath the sea. Three times a day, Charybdis swallowed uncountable amounts of water. then vomited it back out in overwhelming sea swells that caused whirlpools that would consume any ship that approached them. If you wanted to cross the strait, you had to find a way to avoid both Skyla and Charybdis. People have long rationalized this story by saying that it has its origins in the Strait of Messina between Sicily and Calabria, the toe of the Italian boot. Traditionally, Scylla has been identified with the imposing craggy promontory that overlooks the strait on the Cambrian side. And Charybdis with the whirlpool caused by the meeting of the currents off the Sicilian coast. That might be true, or it might be our own Bayesian minds at work, hoping to explain the data we encounter, an ancient story, and no apparent monsters. In any case, the story comes down to us today, most often as the idiom between Scylla and Charybdis, which usually means something like between a rock and a hard place, or pick your poison, or choosing the lesser of two evils. But it's often been editorialized to mean You cannot help but choose one or the other danger, and the choice will inevitably end in disaster no matter what. But I think myths are more porous than that. I think it's more like a catch-22 that you nevertheless escape at some point, but at a tremendous price, just like Jason and Odysseus did the straight in their respective myths. And the matter is often settled not by our wits, but by the sheer passing of time. The strait is uncertainty.
On the one side is Charybdis, the flow of time, with a past that the older you get, you find is just filled with your concerns, the jetsam and flotsam floating in the waters of the present. And the future lies hideously ahead, unformed. On the other side is Skyla, the hard and merciless rock of your conscious experience. It's inescapable. You're thrown into it. You might want to see beyond it, but that's impossible because you are it. As you pass the strait, at first you think the jetsam and flotsam of the past is useless to you, but as time passes by, you find you're able to slowly learn to fashion a vessel that will guide you through the strait. You traverse the strait, often at a terrible price, and you gain some modicum of clarity about the future. And when the waters calm, you begin to take the things of the world, the things that helped you through your trial, for granted. And when those things that you've taken for granted start to fail, then you find yourself right back at the beginning of the strait again. And you have to cross it. And then again. And then again forever. A Million Little Gods is produced at the University of Hamburg. Writing and production are by Ben Federson and me, Aaron Gallen. Editing and audio design, mixing, mastering, these were all done by me this time. You may have noticed that our theme song at the beginning sounded new and doper. That's because it was remastered by Nick McDonald and his band Recycled. The song is called Wake Up and See, and it was the first single released on their new album, No More Boxes. You can find them on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you listen to music. They're spelled R-E-P-S-Y-C-L-E-D, which is clever. There's so much more to basically every interview we do, and we do lots of interviews. So if you'd like to hear more, we're upping our Patreon game. For a $5 monthly membership, you can get access to extended versions of all our interviews. We're releasing the ones from the most recent episodes along with each episode, and we'll be slowly but surely releasing older interviews as we have time. Don't forget, you can find us online at amillionlittlegods.com. You can tweet at us on Twitter, unless you want to complain about the absurd length of this episode. If that's all you've got, then don't at me, bro. Otherwise, the Twitter handle is at Podcast. We're on Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash a million little gods. And tune in next time for episode 11, Don't Call It Race. <laughs>